Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. It's good to look at today's levels of the JSE. We're not quite in record territory anymore. We got there. The JSE peaked at about 69,000. We're 2,500 points shy of that at the moment. This has been a bit of a sell-off on the JSE in recent weeks, and not necessarily because of what's been happening in South Africa. It's largely due to what's been happening around the world, and that creates a lot of confusion. It really does. But overnight, last night, the U.S. Fed, the Federal Reserve, met and discussed and decided that they would not be raising interest rates anytime soon in the United States to combat the risk of inflation, happy to let inflation run its course a little um, so that the American economy can recover. And it's a very grown-up perspective by the U.S. Federal Reserve not to get hot and heavy-handed with interest rates. And as a result of that, we've seen a bit of a recovery in the Currency in the Rand, 1477 to the dollar, 2059 to the pound, 1762 to the euro. Um, and the JSE, not at record levels, but pretty close. Personal finance brought to you by Discovery Bank, the future of banking now. Why is there this enormous disconnect, Warren Ingram, between the stock market and the economy, the economic performance of South Africa? Before we get to that as the topic, just give me a perspective, please. Because so on one hand, we've got the economy 7% smaller now than it was a year ago, and the JSE, which is considerably higher than it was 12 months ago. It doesn't make sense. Explain. I think it's something that that bothers a lot of people. You know, they look at they, they look around and they see all this, uh, you know, really kind of economic devastation of of you know increasing unemployment and people taking pay cuts, and and they assume that that translates to to the stock market. And it's a good assumption. There's nothing wrong with that assumption. That's what happens in most uh, stock markets around the world. They they are a function of their economy. So South Africa is slightly different because the the top. 40 shares on the JSE account for the large uh, majority of the value of, the, of our stock market. But what's really interesting is the top four shares, so four out of the 40, account for 52% of the value of our stock market. So four shares now, make d- up d- more d- than half the value. D- just, just explain that, please, because that is a mind-blowing statistic. In that, we've got Naspas and what else? So, so the, yeah, the biggest company in the JSE is Naspers, and that, that accounts for just under 20% of the value of the, of the stock market. The, the next biggest company is a mining business called BHP Billiton, and uh, that, that's just over 12 and a half. And then uh, Richemont, which is listed in Switzerland, and that's really a kind of luxury goods business, and that's, that's just over 10%. And then another mining business called Anglos, and that's just over 10%. So you add all those together and you and you get to 52% of the value of the stock market. Now, and, what is interesting the, about, about those businesses, sorry, uh, Warren, is that one tiny fraction of 1% of what they do in the world happens in South Africa. And I think there's, I don't mean to fast track the, the conversation, but there's the secret, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, and you just jump through, you know, to, to the next biggest companies and, and, you know, just for interest sake, you know, the, the number four is Anglos at 10%. The next biggest is is the first real South African business and that's First Rand and that's only three and a half percent. 
And and if you go through the top ten, you, you know the bulk of these businesses are are multinationals earning a huge chunk of their money out of South Africa, and and so that's the point. When we look at what's going on on the JSE, uh, you, you know we we get flummoxed because the JSE can go up you know thirty or fifty percent over twelve months, at at the same time when our economy is shrinking by seven. Uh, we need to understand that these companies are being priced right around the world. You know, so, so I mean, Naspers and Richmond are great examples. You know, they, they they're listed in other countries as well. They're, you know, and and a lot of their their revenue is earned, you know, from you know right through China and and, and basically around the world. And the same with the mining houses. You know, they, they earn a lot of their money in dollars uh, because they're selling hard commodities which are are priced in dollars. So so. You know, even I mean, even those mining houses, you know, something like Anglo's, which which really was born out of South Africa, it actually has a very small proportion of its its earnings in South Africa nowadays. So, so that's really the point: is when we when we get you know depressed about the economy and we we assume it's going to translate to our to our shares, that that's true for the bottom half of the of the stock market. You know, so, so sort of, and when I mean when I mean the bottom half, I don't mean in value, but you know the the you know if they're three hundred shares, then the, the bottom hundred and fifty are, are very linked to what goes on the JSE or in in the economy, I should say. But unfortunately, that those hundred and fifty shares, I haven't done the sums for a while, but but I would I would suggest they probably account for less than twenty percent of the yeah. whole value of the stock market. And those are the companies which have come to life, a lot of them, over the last six months or so, because suddenly the South African economy didn't fall by as much as was expected. Then the news flow in South Africa was less bad than feared. And we started seeing a really nice, what they call a re-rating, a, a price increase, a, a, some nice growth coming out of some of those smaller companies, particularly when you look at food retailers, particularly when you look at retailers of um, DIY materials and all of that sort of stuff. And and I think also we, we're seeing an element of of Darwin at work, you know, the, the survival of the fittest, because you, you know let, let's look at something like the construction sector. You know, there were many more construction businesses listed on the stock exchange five and ten years ago, and, and now there, you know, there I think I think a handful is probably too many. And and what's interesting about the remaining businesses is that they've they have, uh, you know, they've trimmed all the excess fat. They've got really strong management teams that have. Have been battle tested uh, beyond belief, and and so any kind of change in in the economy's fortunes would, would be hugely profitable for them. Having said that, they also have a lot less competition. So so you've you've got the survival of the fittest with with very little competition around, and so they're they're making hay now. And and you know as the bad news ends, uh, as you say correctly, that uh, you know suddenly the, the life becomes much easier for them. It's a bit like you know, someone who spends their whole life. You know, cycling into a headwind. You know, and they, they do that for for seven years in a row, and then one day the wind turns, and suddenly they're cycling with the wind, and that's what we've got now: is these super fit companies that that have really only known tough times, and and suddenly there's no headwind, and and they're actually you know they can start to do their business uh, in the way they've always done, but but no one else is around them, so they're going to win every race for a while. So if most of the value of the JSE is made up of companies that earn most of their profits outside of South Africa. Why is there this obsession with offshore investing? I get that South Africa is less than 1% of the global economy, but many of the companies listed on the JSE are companies that do business in other parts of the world. The obsession and the fixation with global investing is curious in that context. 
I think there are, there are probably two good reasons and one bad reason. So, so the, the, the good reasons are that, you know, for example, if you want to access some, some of the, the, the kind of good technology companies in, in the world, unfortunately, the, the JSC, you know, it has NASPAS, but, but, but that's, you know, its biggest holding is Tencent. And that's, you know, that's a very strong business, but it operates really in, in one country being China. Uh, so, so to access something like a Microsoft or an Amazon uh, and the like, and the Zooms of the world, I guess you know nowadays, one needs to 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 go offshore to find those businesses. The, the same would apply to pharmaceutical businesses. You know, we've got Aspen in South Africa, but you know the, the companies that are making the new vaccines and the companies that are going to change the face of medicine over the next decade, they, they unfortunately we can't buy here. So, so I think there is good there there is a good reason to 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 go overseas to find those companies. And then, secondly, uh, if you look at the value of the the JSC and the, and those big offshore companies, you know, two mining houses making up, uh, you, you know, two out of the four biggest companies on the on the stock market. The thing about mines is, you know, when the going's good, they're wonderful businesses to own because they're hugely cash generative. But when the when the going's tough, they they become really terrible investments. And and so, you know, they, that, that's called cyclical. Um, and we don't always want to own just cyclical businesses when we're you know in the JSC. So, so I think you know, you know, to get the diversification effect is good. The the bad reason why why do people obsess about this is because there you know, are people out there that have got lots of offshore products that are punting you know the fear factor around South Africa's political issues around the tough economic uh, conditions we have had, and they are saying there is no growth, there is no hope, you know, and and anything to do with South Africa is tainted, and you know, sell everything and cash in your retirement funds and send the money out. It's frankly terrible advice, and and it's done for self-interest. It's not done for 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 you know you and me and 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 what we want to do with our investments. It's done for people who want to punt products for their own back pockets. Yeah, and when you and the the trouble of taking advice is that you're always going to be subjected to the biases of the person who is sitting across the table from you, and you've really got to have your wits about you, and look at what it's going to cost you, and and try to figure out what's going to give you the best returns over time we have received post in the, the in the very modern sense of the word post uh warren um mails from people and we've chosen a mail from dave tonight which i would like you to consider please dave is 60 years old almost time for him to retire based on his company's retirement age he is a member of the company pension fund and has been told that he needs to use most of his savings to purchase an annuity fine but his question is how do I know which annuity option is suitable for me? That is the question from Dave. We need to get to that question in a moment. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. We've got a mail from Dave saying that he's approaching retirement age at his company, been told he needs to purchase an annuity. How does he know which annuity option is suitable for him, Warren Ingram? I think the first thing to note is there there are really two kinds of annuities that you can buy with your your retirement fund, and so the first one is is called a life annuity, and and that's a very old fashioned one that most of our grandparents would have known if they had worked for a big business, where, where you know you get to retirement age, you, your your um, annuity then says, well, you know, I'm going to give you let's say you know ten thousand rand a month, and and every year uh, thereafter, it should escalate with inflation for the rest of your life. If you pass away, uh, you know, half or 75% of that, so let's say 5,000 or 75,000, or oh, sorry, 5,000 or 7,500 would go to your, your wife. 
and when she passes away, uh, the, the, the money's gone. So, so it's, a, it's, it's really a contract between you and the annuity provider, and it's based on, on the amount of money that you retire with and how old you are and how long you live. And, and those were, were, were really the only option for a long time. But, but then uh, the, the, a thing called a living annuity was developed. And what that does is it says, okay, you, you've retired, you've got 2 million rand in your retirement fund. You can take that 2 million rand and convert it to an investment, which will pay you uh, an, an income. And you can choose how much income you want between two and a half thousand rand, uh, sorry, two and a half percent at the bottom and 17 and a half percent per year at the top end. So somewhere between two and a half percent of the value of that 2 million rand to 17 and a half percent per year. And you can decide exactly how much you want to draw every month. And also you can decide to a large extent how that money is invested. And then if you pass away, that money goes to your, to your wife, for example. And, and if she passes away, it will go to your children or whoever else your, your wife has, has nominated as beneficiaries. So, so it moves the control back into the investor's hands, but also the risk. The risk, firstly, of deciding how the money is invested and also deciding how, how much to draw out of the investment every year. So the living annuities to me are, are a great investment, you know, and I think that like any tool, you know, it, if it's used correctly and used wisely, it's, it can be extremely helpful. But if it's used badly and, and uh, you know, it can be extremely damaging. And, and I think the point here is a lot of people uh, in, in today's instance, for example, might say, well, why don't I just draw 10% a year? You know, it's a nice income and, and I'll be okay. The problem is that investments don't grow at 10% a year when you take into account inflation as well. And so the answer, Dave, is if you can, if you can afford to draw somewhere around 4.5% a year of the value of your retirement fund as an annuity, then a living annuity is, is the ideal investment for you if you stay disciplined and you, you invest the money in a balanced portfolio. Unfortunately, if you need more than that, let, let's say you need 7 or 8% a year, then a living annuity is probably going to be a really destructive place to put your money because you're, you're going to draw too much from that and you're going to erode the value of that, that annuity over probably a 12-year period. And you know, if, you, if you're going to live beyond age 72, then, uh, you, you know, then, then you might be in real financial trouble, in, in which case you, you might want to get a quote for, for a life annuity and see if they'll pay you a higher income uh, over your lifetime than the living annuity will. Okay. So, so I think, yeah. Long, long story short, but, but most of the time, if you're going to retire with enough money, a living annuity is a, is a great investment. If you're retiring with not enough money, then, then consider the life annuity very seriously. Okay, thank you, Warren. And then finally, um, it's a topic that has become uh, very topical as uh, Nedbank, APSA, and a bunch of other companies have decided to stop paying dividends. We talk about these things. I mean, on Monopoly board, bank pays you dividend of 10 rand. It hasn't gone up in 50 years of Monopoly. Um, what is a dividend? A dividend is the, the, the share of the profits that a company makes, and, and those, uh, those profits get divided up amongst all the, in, the shareholders of the company and then gets paid to them usually every six months. So if you own you know, 10% of the company, then, then you're entitled to, to 10% of the, of the profits of that, well, 10% of the dividends of that business. And, uh, and you, as I say, most of the time you'll, you'll get those uh, twice a year. Uh, the, what's happening now, as we can see, is even if a company is profitable, let's say you know the banks, you know they, they have made profits, they might be making less profits, and and what they're deciding to do is they're deciding to withhold uh, any dividends, so they're not obliged in law 
to pay those dividends out to you. That's a decision that the board makes every year, and and you know it's just it's done on how financially sound the business is, how tough the economic conditions are at the time, and what sort of prospects the business feels it it has for growth, and can it use the money better to to pay down debt or to keep as reserves for future tough times. So so important to know that a dividend is not a contractual thing. It's not a an obligation mm-hmm. in law where the company says we have to pay you a share of the profits every year. They would obviously endeavor to do that. They would hope to do that because that's how they keep their shareholders happy. Uh, and as we know, if your shareholders become unhappy, that's how the bosses lose their jobs. But uh, but it's not a contract. It's not like a bank that says we are going gotcha. to pay you 5% interest every year um, on a contract. So, so it is a share of the profits. One hopes that every year those profits tend to grow and so your dividend grows. But but there are times, and as you said, we're living in those now where the dividends can be zero or or much reduced. Uh, and you know, and that's unfortunately the conditions that the companies are operating in at the time. Warren Ingram, thank you very much as always on a Thursday night, getting his teeth into the big issues of the moment. Uh, of course, stock market performance versus the economy. You're going to want to re-listen to that. Share it with your friends who are perplexed by the topic as well. Warren Ingram from Galileo Capital.